Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Very glad that you have joined us for our discussion. Uh, Luke's not here with us. Uh, a special person in his life is having a birthday party. And so we are left without him, but he'll be joining us again next week. We're diving into Genesis again and uh, an interesting discussion ahead of us, I think. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day. Uh, looking forward to this discussion. Ken here. And I'm Lachlan. Now, we had some discussion before we started recording. Uh, Lock and Ken know this, obviously, but uh, we've we've actually dealt with a lot of the themes in Genesis 3, which is what the Lesson Quarterly talks about, and we've commented on the fall in previous episodes. So, and... Um, so, so we don't. We want to avoid going over old ground. Uh, we're going to focus in on a, a particular part of the fall, which we've not discussed so much. I think we've talked a, a fair bit in the past about the tempting, the the event, the eating of the fruit, um, in what sense it was or was not a fall. Um, we we've dwelt perhaps a little less on the the second part of this story, the part where the where the wrongdoers are found out. And uh, so I, I think we might pick up from uh, that section of the chapter. Locke, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I might start from verse 7. No, that, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm sorry. We, look, we, we, <laughs> we've, we've, we may have talked about verse the bits before verse 6, and the, but I still think there's a lot in there, and I think we've got to... We've got to start at oh, verse 6. Well, Ken, I'm trying to okay. stick to our time limit, but we'll see how, how this goes. Read it very quickly, Locke. <laughs> I'm happy to start from verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, no, sorry. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So... This is very much a a story of um, deviation and consequence, punishment, I suppose. In an odd way, Locke, um, uh, the the section that we've read, it definitely reads that way. Uh, in light of the original instruction, it reads slightly different. 
um, in chapter 2, uh, verse 15, and incidentally in chapter 2, of course, Adam is created and the animals are created and then Eve is created at the very end. The sequence occurs in a different order. So at this point, Eve has not yet been created. And one possible explanation for the events of this story is that Adam forgot to pass the message on, um, as husbands <laughs> are, are want to do sometimes. Um, uh, but in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. There's a Hebrew phrase there. I think it is, for dying you shall die. Hmm. And um, some people interpret that by saying, well, he, he'll begin to die. Um, but hmm. other places where that phrase is used in the Old Testament apparently suggest some level of immediacy. Um, it's going to be a... It's going to happen. You're not going to die. You're going to, like, die, die. Um, uh, so there is certainly some suggestion and perhaps an ambiguity in the text, but a natural reading of the text does seem to suggest that God said to them at the front, at the start of this, hey, if you eat of this tree, that's, that's going to be curtains for you. And in, in light of that, what actually happens in Genesis 3 is not what God said. And this is a pattern in that occurs all the way through, because later on we have the flood where God said, I have resolved to destroy every living thing. Every living thing. I've resolved to destroy every living thing. Oh, Noah, can you go build a boat? And I'm going to send a whole bunch mm. of animals onto that boat, um, you know, to save yeah. them. So God seems to be in the business of changing his mind. Yeah. Uh, all right. So perhaps it's not quite such a, a stark story of punishment. It's, it's a story in some ways of punishment averted, of, of the advertised consequence being slightly adjusted. Mm. Um Fair enough. Look, I think there's many things we want to dive into. There's one I want to jump on just because it's on my mind at the moment. In the curse to the woman, or the, 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 when God speaks to the woman, there are a couple of things there that are a little bit cryptic. Um, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and the desire to control is slightly interpretive here. Um, I think many translations say something along the lines of your desire will be for your husband. And I know that I spent um, a considerable amount of time pondering um, uh, how that could be uh, a, a, a punishment. And I remember being startled and excited to read a commentary that highlighted that the wording there, the desire... Um, is exactly the, the wording that is used in the next chapter, in chapter 4, um, when sin is crouching at the door, when the Lord is speaking to Cain. Sin is cr so, so if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out, God says to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. There's this, ten there's this complicated relationship between a desire for control, but, but um, something, con something being your master. And so um, apparently it's the same language construction here in Genesis 3. And so the New Living Translation, I think, is getting quite close to the heart of the matter when it paints it as th the consequence being described here is actually not that the wife will have a desire for her husband, but that there will be a complicated and um, disagreement about power, about the power in the relationship. There will be an, a struggle for authority. The, the woman is going to desire to control her husband, but the husband's going to rule and desire, desire to have control. And my only comment here is that 
unfortunately, the really sad history of humanity does seem to be, even up to the present day, that God's stated consequence of sin here has played out. Men have indeed ruled over women to a significant extent. And the reason it's on my mind is that I have just recently been in conversation with um, uh, an acquaintance of mine and and a friend and a mentor, and she has been doing some work in trying to help our Adventist church administrative structures um, move towards some policies and some procedures and some uh, teams and committees and, and you know, sub-organizations to try and address the way that our own Adventist church leadership has yeah. minimized the ability for, for women to, to have a significant role to play um, within that structure of the church. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't know if men do rule over women, but they certainly rule over the Adventist church. Um, right. <laughs> so that was that was one of the comments. The other the other factor is it's it's a mark of the effects of sin in all of us that mm. we regard this as being a punishment for the woman by itself. But obviously, yeah. it's okay for the men because they get to be in charge. So you know, they get their punishment <laughs> second. Um, this this is a punishment on the man as well. Um, a relationship that's one based on power is is not a nurturing, mm. you know, mutually beneficial mm. relationship. Um, the man's curse is a curse on the woman as well. It, the women had to eat as well. It wasn't just men that ate. Stuff. Yeah. So so making it hard to produce food is is as much a curse on the women and the children and everyone. Um, yeah. So if we were to read the story, uh, if we were to read this, this to say, women are punished, and the way they're punished is men are put in charge. First of all, that's a bit of an indictment on, on us men, isn't it? If a punishment for the women is that <laughs> is to place us in charge. So I don't know why we, that doesn't make us more humble to start with. But secondly, to, to presume that being, you know, the male is the head of the house, the head of the family, the head of the church or whatever, to presume that that is a position of privilege and not one of mm. loss, is bad. To be put, to be put yeah. on... You talk to anyone who becomes an administrator in an institution and you, you are suddenly in a position where you can't afford to have close friends among the staff members mm. without it being seen as a political statement. You can't, you know... The powerful position is a very lonely position. This is why rich people lock themselves up in gated communities and can't engage with their, their surroundings. What... What's described, the relationship that's described in verse 16 seems to me, um, although the husband might think and some husbands perhaps might think that lording it over their wives is a fun thing, it's not to their, it's not to their benefit. It's not, mm. it's not actually a good thing for the husbands either. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it seems to me that if we are to be the sort of people who want to be agents of God's kingdom, part of being agents of God's kingdom is being facilitators of undoing or redressing the negative effects of sin in the world. Um, you know, being agents for good means to some extent standing up against the tide of effects of sin. And although it's futile, it's nonetheless a sort of a sort of target to aim for. And it seems to me that this is more clearly than perhaps almost anything else stated as one of the consequences of sin. And if we are to stand up <laughs> in the world and say we don't accept sin 
um, as the way things should be. We 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 have a bigger picture and a better goal. Mm. Then this is one we're going to have to put in the in the centre of our crosshairs. Um, uh, it's interesting that it's three men having this discussion, and I observe that it strikes me that the summary of this part of the conversation might be uh, where men rule. That is a consequence of sin, not an aspiration. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And we do this with diet. We say, oh, yeah, I know God said we could eat animals after the flood, but that was all as a consequence of sin. That wasn't that wasn't how it was in the beginning. Uh, we, we promote the Eden diet, don't we? we? We're back to the to the authentic thing. Why don't we promote the Eden power structures within the church? Mm, yeah. Or the power's the wrong word, maybe. But, you know, and the 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 point that we're sort of describing in various ways is outlined uh, clearly in the book that's in front of me uh, which is called Back to the Present by Lawrence Turner and he observes that these these curses are not God prescribing what he wants to happen it is God describing what will happen and that hmm. once you've identified this stuff as the results of sin you are then fully not just allowed or entitled to but expected as God's followers, to work against this. Hmm. And it seems hmm. to me that in the end is uh, uh, what the entire New Testament, at least, uh, is seeking to do. Um, yep. uh, p- putting even to one side, uh, husbands love your wives, um, uh, just looking at removing gender from the equation, uh, hmm. We're called to love each other, uh, to serve each other, uh, to put mm. each other first. Um, uh, and that's uh, the entire, uh, well, no, that is a central component um, of the New Testament theme. And it seems to me that's what we're, um, what we're seeing here. I think that's a very useful and helpful discussion. Uh, Cam, you're going to make another point on it. I think we should move on okay. to other aspects of last thought. Genesis three. Uh, compare verse sixteen to Paul's uh, passage and entreaty for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself mm. for it. Mm. And I mm. think you've got a fairly strong refutation. There's there's a, a sense of where um, sin is breaking apart the things that ought not be and introducing disharmony where it wouldn't. Um, Adam's curse is to be ruled over by the ground, and he was made from the ground. Eve's curse is to be ruled over from the man, and she was made from the man. So um, there's a method to this. It may not necessarily Mm. be a statement about gender. It could be a a deeper thing. Um, The other direction that we wanted to go in before we started, and we don't want to run out with time, is is looking a bit closer, uh, further up the passage, where... Um, the response of these people to, to being found out, um, to being caught um, in the act. We often say that how wonderful it must have been for Adam and Eve. They walked with God, they talked with God, they knew him intimately. They were not um, marred in their communication or experience of him by the effects of sin, isn't it? Mm. You know, wonderful. I'm not sure if their response to God really does show a good knowledge of his character. Yeah, well, the, there's an interesting implication here. One of the questions that I pondered at great length as a younger person was how much time elapses between the events recorded in Genesis 1 and 2 and the story here in Genesis 3. 
um, it seems that the passage of time was not a particularly um, central theme in the in the pre Genesis three world. Uh, you know, we 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 conjure up very vivid images of living in a perfect world without sin, without death, um, sort of eternal life because of access to the tree of life and so on and so forth. And I've wondered as a younger person, you know, was it just very quick or was it a long time? Your question is making me hypothesize, Cam, that this may have happened quite quickly. And if so, no matter how wonderful Adam and Eve could have been, um, it takes time for humans to learn. And, you know, it seems to me that God probably didn't create them in a state where they already had deep and wonderful knowledge of him because the, the, it seems he was wanting to be able to grow that relationship. Hmm. So it, it may not even be, it may not be at all bizarre to, to actually make the claim that Adam and Eve didn't have, an inc- at this point in the story, an incredibly thorough and well-developed understanding of and relationship with God. They, they were still figuring everything out. There's a great passage, or a great whole central theme to C.S. Lewis's um, Voyage to Venus in the Cosmic Trilogy. The, the premise being that uh, there is, a in this story, uh, an unfallen world on Venus, and that the devil is is not content with the trouble he's causing on Earth and is now trying to tempt, it's to repeat his success on Earth on, on Venus. And God sends someone from Earth to Venus to talk to this innocent you know, woman, there who doesn't understand good and evil like she's complete innocence and the person from earth has a really hard time explaining what what it means to do wrong in terms of consequence and impact on the world and all the rest of it and it's it's a you know just an interesting perspective on on a reimagining of 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 what it must have been like um for the characters in this story uh they don't own up to what they're doing and there's, it's really, I like this, um, I added some emphasis when I read it, but I think the emphasis is is in here. Uh, when the man says, God says, well, what's happened? You know, have you eaten from this tree? And the man says, um, uh, the woman the woman you gave me as a companion, yeah. <laughs> this woman, this woman that you gave me, um, yeah. gave me the fruit from the tree and so I ate it. Um, I'm reminded, <laughs> I'm reminded of... Um, Another story where people have found out when Aaron's found out after making the golden calf, and the, yeah. in the story it explicitly says that he he hammered it with tools, he shaped it with tools. But when he's yeah. explaining it to Moses, he says, "I threw the gold in the fire, and out came this cow." Um. <laughs> it's it's interesting because it's a it's a co- common human experience, uh, and mm. I catch myself doing it all the time, uh, telling the story with the events accurately relayed so that I can maintain my sense of integrity, uh, but just with a with a slight little twist um, uh, it, that, that makes me just appear not quite as bad as I might appear if I told it uh, with all of my, the background thoughts and motivations uh, um, uh, in there. I... I uh, I mean, a, a classic example occurred uh, the other day for me, and and um, uh, I had committed to be on a panel to discuss the Book of Hebrews in Sabbath school. Um, a friend of mine who's built an aeroplane of the same essential type as 
the one that I'm currently building, uh, rang me and said, look, I've been told I have to go to this fly-in. Um, now, there'd be many who would say, well, that's clearly not a Sabbath activity. Um, uh, uh, but and, and I've got a spare seat. Uh, do, you, do, do you want to come with me? I don't really want to go, um, but I've been told I have to go and, you know, I reckon you can you, you can come with me. Um, and, and of course, I immediately uh, said, yes, that's what I'll do, knowing that I had made a prior commitment, uh, a much holier commitment, of course, um, uh, to participate in a discussion about Hebrews, uh, and knowing that I had not spoken to the person who um, I had asked to be released, uh, who, had, who I had made the commitment to, to be released from that commitment. I made a conflicting commitment. Uh, but simply because that's what I wanted to do. Um, uh, when, of course, I then rang him and relayed the story to his wife, I placed significant emphasis on the fact that uh, uh, that the person who had asked me um, really didn't want to go, uh, but it invited me along, so I was really doing him a favour, um, helping out. Can, um, uh, can so, be so that, uh, You know, I adjusted the story uh, so that it would match um uh put put me in a better light uh when the mm. truth and the reality is that i simply made a selfish choice to do what i wanted to do can be um, careful because i think they listen to this podcast but it i know they do and this will mount to a confession um, yeah. <laughs> indirectly. It, doesn't, it doesn't matter ken because we can clean it up in the edit and make you look heaps better <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I mean, your your um your reference to Aaron and the Golden Calf Cam as being slightly reminiscent of this um is a really good one. We were struggling before we pressed the record button to to think of some other examples. The one we did think of was was David and Bathsheba, and we might go there in a few more details. But at the biggest picture, David and Bathsheba, remember what. The way God calls him out on that effectively is is through Nathan the prophet who tells a story, and I'm just thinking, can the you know um, the the <laughs> the um, the the ad- admission of guilt through a podcast is not so different from the accusation of guilt through a through a parable. There's an overlap. There. It's a great example of a question we we're asking last. Um, week when we're asking about how important is the historicity of a story because mm-hmm. david says oh who is the, did this happen did this happen who did who did it who did it and nathan said you did it now of course he didn't do it mm-hmm. he didn't go and take a sheep what he did was worse he didn't mm-hmm. just take a sheep off somebody he murdered someone you know and so so that story is a true story but it didn't happen yeah yeah um, <laughs> and yeah and it is a story that's always happening um it's there's a lot of parallels actually between the story in the way it's told. Um, uh, David saw Bathsheba. Um, yeah, I, pre- I, you were, you were absolutely right, Ken, for, to make us go back to verse six. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Um, yeah, the. She also gave some text. to her husband. And then when we go over to Second Samuel chapter 11, uh, which is the story of Bathsheba, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent, one, sent someone to find out about her. 
The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent his word to Job, send me the Uriah the Hittite. And what does he do? He tries to hide it. Yeah. Uh, so exactly what Adam and Eve uh, were doing back in the garden. So it starts with a seeing and a desire. Um, uh, and it ends uh, yeah. with hiding. Uh, I heard a great sermon on this by Lawrence Chen, actually, um, in college church once, where he began, it was just after an Ashes test match where a highly questionable um, decision had been made by the umpires in favour of the Brits, and to the outrage of the local Australian crowds, and um, it was almost certainly the wrong call to make, but it had been made, and when when asked about when the English captain was asked about it afterwards, the English captain said, "Ah, these things happen," and he <laughs> he began by by bringing this up and throwing it back in the face of the Australian congregation, and then then he read this chapter because that's what David says when he finds out that Uriah's been killed. A messenger comes and says, mm. "Oh, Uriah's been killed because David sent him to the front line." David said, "Oh, don't worry, you know people die in wars." Um, yeah. These things happen. Yeah, and these then, things happen. And then Lawrence Turner went back and and went and looked at exactly how these things happen. And if you go through and you say, how many decisions did David make to make these things happen? Uh, mm. They don't just happen. It starts at the very start of the story when it was the time of year that kings went off to war, but David didn't. He stayed home. And there's a suggestion. Mm. It seems a bit odd to us because we obviously look at wars as being something that's a bad thing. But the king sort of had a duty to lead his people. Mm. And David thought that he'd just relax in comfort while he let other people take the risks. And that's the first one. And, you know, there's a sequence of decisions. This is not something that just happened. And what's really shown up in the story is that Uriah the Hittite, drunk, has more morals (laughs) than the Israelite king does sober. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very striking. I, I'm struck here also by the similarities. What is what is Adam's reply here in Genesis three? You've just you emphasized it earlier, Cam. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. It just it just happened. Now, even if Adam was given the fruit by Eve, why is it? And I ate it. Right. That, this is this is a, there's a huge amount being glossed over there by Adam's statement. Oh, um, it was put in my hands and I ate it. These these things happen. It just it's just I couldn't you know. <laughs> but but there was a huge. He was making a sequence of decisions as well, and and is not standing up to them, not owning them in this in that part of the story. You see, I think this raises a really interesting question about where does the sin start. Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, I think it's fair to say that the sin is not the temptation. Um, uh, and perhaps it might be fair to say the sin isn't the desire. Um, and neither is the sin the beauty. Um, uh, where, where does the sin arise? And particularly going back to the Genesis story, where in that does the mm. sin arise? Um, uh, and I mean, uh, Ellen White gives some interesting observations about this, and and they're not contained in the biblical account. Many of them, um, uh, but uh, it also makes it 
Uh, Cam, this brings me back to one of the things that you raised earlier, that perhaps they didn't really know the character of God well. Um, uh, I don't think it matters uh, whether they knew uh, the character of God well or not, um, because the experience of sin uh, is that uh, we do what we want and mm. we fulfill our desires, notwithstanding any knowledge of the goodness of God. Maybe the problem is we want our way. It's yeah. not. It's not that they didn't know God so well. It's that they didn't stay true to the bit of Him that they did know. They had some knowledge mm. of God, and God had said, mm. "Don't eat from the tree." Um, it's like I know this is something I've commented before, but it's like the Pharisees saying. Oh, I'm a bit worried about this Christ, this this Jesus who thinks he's the Messiah. He'll start a fight with the Romans, and then the Romans will take our temple away from us. Hang on, hang on. If they're expecting the Messiah to fight the Romans, what they're effectively saying is, we don't want our Messiah. Hmm. We're quite comfortable running our temper at the mo- temple at the moment. Um, in other words, the problem was not that they had the wrong picture of the Messiah. The problem was that when push came to shove, they just weren't really willing to relinquish control or take the risk. Mm. Um, and, and, and they didn't actually trust God. Um, so mm. to, to give them the good that they needed or wanted, or, uh, and, and they simply prioritised uh, their own desires and, and preferenced their own desires, um, uh, allowed their desires to speak. Um, uh, to exercise power and control, um, and and they didn't trust God to do what Hebrews eleven six, the verse that I've been contemplating a bit recently, says that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Um, uh, so uh, this was precisely what they didn't do. So, but still, it's an interesting question about where did the sin start, and how is it that a that a perfect human being um, uh, was not was able to make a decision to prefer their own desires over uh, well, Ken, over the command of God the answer to that is it never says they were perfect it says they were good and they mm. obviously weren't perfect because they made the wrong choice and a perfect person would have made the right choice mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. This right. is, we've definitely commented in the past in another episode about the, the dilemmas that we have when we bring the word perfect mm. back to Genesis. It, it also um, raises a, some fascinating questions about the nature of the material existence that they had. Um, uh, to see something that is good for food. Well, to see something... Uh, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that the world that we're... Uh, it's interesting that the spiritual world is something that is not seen. <laughs> um, uh, at least from our fallen perspective. Um, yeah. uh, I wonder, was this a lack of faith on the part of Adam and Eve? Was it, was, was it a, a failure to see um, uh, in the way that our lack of faith is a failure to see in a similar way. Uh, and, and, right. and, and, and indeed, um, and this is, uh, this is a point that Bornhofer makes in, in um, The Cost of Discipleship as well. Um, I, we often think, in the same way that we think Adam and Eve had an advantage, we often think that the disciples had an advantage 
because they were there uh, with Christ. Mm. Um, and, and they saw him and all the things that he did. And so they, they had this huge advantage over us. And indeed, Jesus says, you know, blessed are those uh, you, you know, you've seen and you believed. Uh, blessed are those who have not seen uh, and who believe. Uh, and yet it strikes me that there's a real way in which the imminent presence of Jesus of the and the humanity of Jesus and the ability to see him and interact with him was no advantage whatsoever because you and I interact with people every day and we don't see their value mm. and their worth as spiritual beings um, uh, and we and indeed uh, it's highly likely it seems to me uh, that there's a good chance we would respond to the physical presence of Jesus uh, in exactly the same way as the Pharisees uh, did in his time. Isn't this the bloke who was born in that place down there? And we simply see what is in front of us, the material world that's in front of us, in the very same way that Adam Adam and Eve did. And maybe that's part of the message um, that... To, to prioritize the imminence of the material world is to miss the point. Yeah. Mm. Have you read Ken, um, C- uh, not C.S. Lewis, Adrian Plasser's... We're ticking off everyone this week, can't we? We've got, we got through. We do very well. Yeah. Uh, have you read Adrian Plasser's parable, The Visit? No. The premise is that mm. everyone at church is very excited because they, they've just heard that the founder's going to make a, a visit. The founder of the church is coming meaning Christ, but he's referred to as the, the founder. And they get a big event up. They, they're going to lay out the red carpet. They're going to have speeches. You know, They're all sitting there. Wait- and there's an awful embarrassing moment when people suddenly realise that he, he came 10 minutes ago and he's sitting in the back row halfway along the pew. <laughs> and they're expecting some sort of fanfare and they, they sort of... They sort of go up to him and um, they say to him, you know, well, you know, can you come up and take part in, you know, we're going to have a special service and whatever. And, and he says, well, actually, I was, I was thinking of going across to the Boar and Spittal or whatever, you know, the pub across the road. Um, and so he trundles off to the pub and everyone in the church is just left there looking completely dazed at each other. And half an hour later, he comes out of the pub and the crowd's twice as big as when he went into the pub. And he wanders back into the church and people are draped over the pews and they're sitting around him in a circuit and the programs, all this, this program that the people have put together. It was a really good program that was going to, you know, show the church off in its best light. Um, no, he's, he's not really paying attention. He's listening to people and he's talking to people. And um, it's a it's a really fun sort of thought experiment, but very much along, along the lines of what you were saying. Um, I think that, the question where, this, where does the sin start is a good one. I had a friend at Avondale who was Christadelphian and that they don't believe in a personal devil. And uh, I think we had some conversations on the subject and um, it was one of your students, like when you taught maths there that, that year. Um, uh, her comment was that the Bible seems to describe enough uh, unholy desires in humans to explain suffering. Mm-hmm. which is a compelling argument. As C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis thought that there were such things as devils, but he, he conceded that it was possible to be a Christian and think otherwise. Um, and certainly the emphasis, as it's told here in, in David and Bathsheba and in Genesis, is that David didn't need much tempting. Mm. Mm. I mean, the serpent doesn't say a lot to Eve. Eve 
Yeah. Yeah. And and David David doesn't seem to need a huge amount of extra help in doing the wrong thing. Um, it it is uh, it is a really good question. I'm eyeing the, eyeing the clock, and um, in as much as we have, I think not a lot of chance in in definitively nailing down where sin comes from. I thought we would we would look at at the the difference between David when he's found out and Adam and Eve when they're found out because it is true that David tries to hide but when it's brought in the open he does not shift the blame and mm. in fact he writes a song to be sung in public like a hymn that's all about how he's done the wrong thing um, and I thought we might finish by reading that psalm psalm 51 what a wonderful uh, and this is the the subtitle for the director of music a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because he's hurt so many other people in this process. Hmm. Uh, uh, not least, of, right. not least of which the the unborn child, who who, who died as an infant after being born, um, and uh, and Bathsheba, and you know anyway. But but what what David is saying is, in hurting these people, I have hurt you. Hmm. Um, so uh, uh, he's not shifting the blame, is he? Is saying, yeah. Yeah, and you—I mean, just the end of that verse you were reading. Your judgment against me is just. Yeah, you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me. A pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. There is certainly some, I think, better understanding of God revealed in this than in Adam and Eve's response. And the thing that I pulled out that I liked was when David said, look, I'm, there's something fundamentally wrong about me, and I, I'm not right. Um, you you clean me, and I'll be clean. There's an inference there that if I try and fix this, I'm, I'm such a flawed instrument uh, that if hmm. I try and fix myself, I can't be sure of doing you know, a good job. Um, you, but if you do it, then... Um, I'll be clean. Uh, wash my be greater than slow, uh, uh, snow, uh, creating me a pure heart. 
And then earlier on is the other one where he talks about the judgment. You're right when you judge. Um, God, uh, David mm. is really saying to God, as opposed to Adam and Eve, and I guess it's a bit, he, he waited till he was found out. Hmm. Uh, so it's not altogether perfect. But our invitation is to, is to do this before we're found out. Um, is to say to God, no, actually, your judgment is something I really want. And I, th- I think we spend too much time talking about an end time judgment a point in time where things will be decided. And um, I know that writers like C.S. Lewis very much held to the view that by the time we get to the end time judgment, it will have already been decided. We will either, by that stage, have trained ourselves into people who welcome God, God's judgment and input in our lives, or into people who resent it. Mm. Um, and, and there are two sorts of people who have said there are those people... Uh, who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom he says, thy will be done. Hmm. Uh, and so I think the challenge is, let's maybe think less about end times. Let's think about right today and say, all right, God, what is it right today? You know, judge me now. You wash me, mm-hmm. I'll be cleaner than snow. Um, I don't trust myself to make good decisions. Uh, help me on this one. And And, you know, if you have so as to speak, survived and perhaps enjoyed, maybe not enjoyed, but benefited from and much valued God's judgment in your life every day, there's probably a lot less to fear about a judgment in the future. Hmm. (laughs) Well, did we stick to half an hour? No. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that's because we are flawed instruments and we (laughs) we lack the capacity to properly control our our discussions uh any any um of our listeners who want to email us ken at the address at sabbath school from home at gmail.com and thank you so much for listening to this discussion and uh, join us again next week as we move to the next stories in genesis